Imagine it's 9.14am on a Monday morning. You're sitting at your desk, the caffeine hasn't even hit your system yet, and an email pops up in your inbox from your manager. A total of 1,226 words with an additional attachment of 7,266 words and a request to spend the following Saturday in a brainstorming session on the mission of a new project. Ugh, are you kidding? How frustrating. Now, what would you do next? Well, in the case of our guest today, Hayagriva Rao, he decided to write a book about it. Welcome to We Are Human Leaders. I'm Alexis Sana, and together with my co-host, Sally Clark, Today, we're diving into the topic of friction. The Friction Project is a book written by Huggy Rao and Bob Sutton, the definitive guide to eliminating the forces that make it harder, more complicated, or downright impossible to get things done in an organization. The Friction Project, how smart leaders make the right things easier and the wrong things harder, is written by best-selling authors and Stanford professors Robert Bob Sutton and Hayagriva Huggy Rao. It presents a decade's worth of research on what ought to be easy and what ought to be hard in organizations and how to change things for the better. Based on their research, case studies, and hundreds of engagements with top companies, the authors reveal just how widespread this affliction is, and they provide a roadmap for readers to take up the mantle and blaze a path out of the muck. Our episode today with Huggy Rao unpacks this book and the incredible research conducted to help you discern between what good and bad friction is and what you can do about it. Huggy Rao is the Athol McBean Professor of Organizational Behavior at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Among other illustrious accolades, he's also written for the Harvard Business Review, Business Week, and the Wall Street Journal. He is the author of Market Rebels and co-author of the best-selling Scaling Up Excellence. Now, without further ado, let's dive in because there is so much for us to discuss and unpack when it comes to the topic of friction. Welcome to We Are Human Leaders. It's really exciting to have this conversation with you. We have so many questions, but we'd love to start by getting to know you a little bit better and to understand a little of the personal journey that you've taken to that brought you to the work that you're doing today. Wonderful question, Sally. This book, of course, uh, The Friction Project, How Smart Leaders Make the Right Things Easy to Do and the Wrong Things Harder, was a wonderful collaborative adventure with my colleague, co-conspirator, comrade Bob Sutton. And the short version of the story is Bob and I live two streets down from each other in Menlo Park, California. We love drinking wonderful wines and we conspire to create more adventures so that we can drink more. I love it. (laughs) So we do lots of things together. And it turned out that we wrote a book, Scaling Up Excellence, and that book did really well. And, you know, we'd spend, and the book was a Wall Street Journal bestseller. And as we were teaching that book, one of the things is, you know, we spent a lot of time trying to understand how companies are really scaling upward, outward, (laughs) and becoming bigger. And one of the things we kind of like chanced on as we were 
teaching material from scaling up excellence was the responses of young people in high technology companies in the Bay Area. And I remember this person so vividly. He looked at me and he said, in my company, he said, I'm swimming in a sea of shit. I barely have my head above water. And he looked at me with incredulity and said, and you expect me to show initiative and generosity? How is that possible? And I sort of got momentarily stumped. And I sort of gave an answer. And then Bob and I thought, you know, we really needed to discover what was sort of going on. And that was kind of when what we sort of came upon was, oh my God, you've got this huge tendency to psychologize burnout as though it's like an individual outcome and individuals are the ones who've got to deal with it. Instead, we said, you know, burnout is the outcome of organization design and leadership. And that's kind of how we began our journey into the friction project. And as we did that, we realized while there was a lot of bad friction out in organizations, there also was good friction too. And so that kind of really created a puzzle for us. And that's kind of how we got into the book. And so we sort of think that really the challenge for leaders is to figure out how do I make the right things easy for people to do by taking out bad friction? How do I make the wrong things harder to do by putting in good friction? And this isn't just for consumers, for employees, by the way, it's also for consumers as well. We love this idea of friction, Huggy. And as someone who has worked in a multitude of organizations from local government to bigger corporations, this book was so relatable, the case studies and examples that you offered in this book. And just for a moment, before we dive into some of that more, Huggy, can we just take a moment to unpack what friction is and in the context of business, perhaps where it's helpful and where friction is harmful? Absolutely. Great question, Alexis. The simplest definition of friction is it's an obstacle. And obstacles are double-edged swords. You know, some obstacles, what they do is they sort of make it very hard for employees to choose a more curious and generous version of themselves. Because what these obstacles do to people is they infuriate you, they exhaust you. And you just kind of give up and say, what me being curious, what me being helpful, forget it. So that's sort of what for us bad friction is. Obstacles that prevent people from choosing a more curious and generous version of self. By the same token, good friction consists of obstacles that prevents people from embracing an overconfident, myopic, or for that matter, an ambivalent version of themselves. So the point is not to kind of like eliminate obstacles, it's to actually kind of figure out which kind of obstacle to take out and where to actually put an obstacle. So if I were to Two quick sort of examples of good friction on the one hand and bad friction on the other. Let me begin with bad friction. We actually begin our book with that example where Bob and I received an email from one of the functionaries in our university. I mean, 1,200 plus word email with a 7,200 plus word attachment and inviting us to donate two of our Saturdays and some deliberation. You know, you kind of wonder and say, is this really an invitation or is this really an invitation? an assault, you know, and predictably Bob shot off an irate note to our provost. So, you know, it just kind of, you look at that and it's very clear that the person seeking to pursue a reform or a change, they completely change blind. They're viewing the change from their point of view. They've no idea what the human consequences are, how people interpret all of this. 
So by the same token, if you think of like good friction, good friction is any obstacle that slows down people so that they actually think a little more deliberately and carefully. Like a simple example and a very compelling one for our listeners is in the state of Massachusetts, Blue Cross, one of the insurers, they were actually confronting a huge problem of overprescription of opioids. Well, how do you stop doctors from overprescribing opioids? You can think of incentives and you can think of a lot of things. Finally, they hit upon the idea of introducing a little obstacle, a little bit of good friction. So they told the doctors, you're obviously the experts, you know your patient. Of course, you can prescribe opioids, but when you do, you really need to write a one-page memo justifying that. And we'll actually get it reviewed by a panel of opioid experts. Astonishingly, the cost of writing that memo was on average around eight minutes or so. But that led to, if you can believe it, 21 million fewer opioid prescriptions in the state of Massachusetts. Just think of that. Just think of it. Yeah. So simple obstacle. So good friction prevents you from sleepwalking, basically, in organizations. In this case, sleepwalking into decision. Bad friction wears you out. Thanks for explaining that, Huggy. I think that gives all of us a really sort of very tangible idea of what good and bad friction looks like. And probably for a lot of us, you know, there's quite a few examples of the bad friction that come to mind. And so much of it, I think, simply goes unquestioned almost. It's taken for granted and it's almost taken as being a normal part of how we work in many organizations. So I can imagine there's a huge you know, possibility and realm of opportunity really for leaders to be able to really shift the dial in ensuring that we're reducing that bad friction, but also without simply, as you say, I have all these metaphors in my head of, you know, we don't want just sort of shooting down the fire pole or something. We need a little bit of good friction in there too, to slow us down and to create those conscious moments of reflection. And just to sort of go deeper a little bit into that in terms of what it looks like practically for leaders. And you use this beautiful term in the book of a friction fixer. And I'd love it if you could explain for us a little bit about what a friction fixer is and how they operate differently. Great question, Sally. So our big insight was leaders truly, great leaders are friction fixers. What do we really mean by that? I think what we mean by that is great leaders have a mindset where the first element of the mindset is, I'm a trustee of other people's time. So the worst thing in the world to do is to misuse, piss away other people's time and frustrate So the first thing is time is your scarcest kind of resource. So you respect that. The second thing is we, of course, sell products and services to customers outside, but leaders often don't think of their own organization itself as a product. You know, how easy is this product to use? How accessible is it? You know, all of these kinds of considerations. So they just don't think of the organization itself as a product. Now, the moment you think of yourself as a trustee of somebody's time, and the moment you think of the organization as a product, the leader, in a sense, becomes like an editor-in-chief, if you will. What do great editors-in-chiefs of magazines and movies and all these things do? On the one hand, they prune away things that frustrate, distract, bore, annoy, and infuriate readers. At the same time, they kind of make sure they create suspense, you know, uh, you know they, they, they sustain your kind of engagement. They make sure that there's like a good threshold of procedures for evidence to be there, for an investigation to be done, in short, for a story to have legs. So that's kind of our view of leaders. So leaders really are editors-in-chief. 
And when we say they are friction fixers, that's kind of what we mean. The tragedy of all of this and perhaps the hope for future improvement is very seldom do we see people in organizations evaluating senior level talent and asking themselves, is this person a good friction fixer? Is this a leader who actually understands how to be an editor-in-chief? And it doesn't matter whether you're leading a team, whether you're leading a department, a business unit, or an enterprise. It's the same set of considerations. So often what we do is we put in people into positions of power and authority where they really don't ask meaningful sort of questions about how time is even deployed. In one company that, you know, we asked uh, the executive committee, hey, how long do you guys meet and how often do you meet? And they said, well, we meet once a week. So that's like 52 meetings a year, 52 hours multiplied by six of us in the executive committee. And I said, well, that kind of spells out how much time you guys spend in the meeting. Have you thought of how much time the rest of the organization spends so that you can actually have this meeting? And they hadn't thought of it. And when they did a little bit of digging, quickly they realized the rest of the organization was spending 300,000 hours a year to support this weekly one-hour meeting. Now, you can imagine, this company is spending a little bit north of 300,000 hours after we include the executive committee meeting. And so the question we posed to them is, like, what are you getting out of all this time? mean? Like, are you getting something, an insight that's worth all this money? And so you can take $300,000, 300,000 hours multiplied by like some base wage rate. Let's say it's 300 bucks an hour or whatever it is, is the wage rate. And, you know, and you can ask yourself meaningful questions. And I think that's kind of what we mean by being really a friction fix. Somebody who is very, and somebody who really understands by implication how work gets done several levels beneath. I think what's so fascinating about your work, Huggy, is that it gets to the core of this word that we hear used so often in business, and that is productivity and people misplacing and misunderstanding where we can actually create better efficiencies, both as leaders and for our employees by actually looking more critically at where we're spending our time. And I love this example of, you know, as someone who's worked in local government for a long period of time, I tend to find that organizations that operate in the public sector tend to have more red tape, more bureaucratic frustrations for their employees. And certainly that was my experience. But I also appreciate that example that you mentioned around where creating some level of friction actually forces us to change our decision making. And one of the examples you had in the book was the Google Glasses (laughs) fail when that idea in particular was taken to market too early. But there was one quote that came out of it for me. And that was that you mentioned this quote that labor leads to love. And A lot of the work that Sally and I do with organizations is actually helping leaders to understand when to hold a group in tension or in friction and when to actually remove friction. Can you help us understand a little bit more what friction in a group setting, like what are some of the outcomes of being able to hold a group in friction with an idea or with something like that in that setting? Could you help us unpack that a little bit? Absolutely. The first thing is, uh, you know, I love your emphasis on government. I think in the book, we have an example in the state of Michigan, where they have this extraordinarily long questionnaire that you have to complete, you know, hundreds of questions, and out of which one was, can you please tell us the date on which your child was conceived? And I'm thinking, how many people would be able to answer that question? 
That's so intrusive. And not only that, it, it's not clear what decision it's an input into. Clearly, the system is designed to deter individuals. And two of our students who created a company called Civilla, they actually worked with the government people and realized even the government people themselves were interested in changing things. So hopefully, I mean, there is hope in that sense. So for us, this gets to, you know, your question, Alexis, gets us to friction forensics. And, you know, one of the things you need to do as a leader is you've got to kind of do a little bit of forensic analysis. And the forensic analysis has to do with what's the nature of the decision we are making? Is this like a very costly to reverse decision? So the costly to reverse decision might be acquiring a company. That's like an extreme edge case. Launching a new product. All of those kinds of And, you know, we call these decisions following Jeff Bezos. Think of them as like one-way doors. You can kind of get in to the room, but you can't get out, or it's kind of hard to get out. So hard to reverse decisions. So what we sort of recommend, and then by contrast, there are decisions where, you know, failure is sort of cheap. It's easy to reverse the decision. The cost of a mistake is low, all of those kinds For us, what you need to do is you've got to create good friction when people are making one-way door decisions or costly to reverse decisions. It could be as simple a thing as recruiting a senior executive into the C-suite to, you know, uh, acquisitions, divestments, and the like. And on the good friction, on the bad friction side, part of what you want to do is the most important thing in any company is the two muscles are curiosity and generosity. So you've got to always ask yourself and say, how do I make it easy for people to be curious, to figure things out, to ask questions instead of like, you know, careening around in confusion? And the other thing is, how do you get people to be helpful? And I think, you know, and so to my mind, and so, you know, taking out bad friction often requires you to look at all of these things. One of the things what we've found is if you don't take bad friction out, our research kind of has you know, shown that a big problem in companies is time poverty. And the difficulty is when you have time poverty, good people immediately begin to do bad things. So that's kind of where you got to take the bad friction out to reduce time poverty. And I could give you sort of study after study, but we really need to take time poverty out. And one first step in giving, in dealing with the problem of time poverty is in our book, we use a memorable phrase. We just tell people, hey, first thing you got to do is you got to mow the lawn. Who is mowing the lawn in your company is the question we ask people. And they look at you and see nobody's mowing the lawn. That's the problem. Mowing the lawn isn't any department's responsibility. Now, if you don't mow your garden or lawn regularly, it's going to be overrun with weeds. How can you put in a new flower, a new fruit or a new vegetable? There's just no way they'll thrive they're actually going to be outcompeted by the weeds. So one of the things we talk about, therefore, is, you know, when you think of taking out bad friction, don't just think of it as an efficiency-enhancing move. Instead, think of it as giving your employees the gift of time. And the moment you think of this as a gift of time, what do people do when you give people a gift? They reciprocate. At least the evidence suggests that if I give either of you a gift worth of one Australian dollar or one U.S. dollar, uh, you know, or one euro or whatever, people respond on an average anywhere between three to seven Australian or U.S. dollars or three to seven euros. So reciprocity is sort of a big part of it. And that's kind of where 
we really need to make a big, big dent. So first thing, mow the lawn. I love it. I think that's such a beautiful way of framing it, Huggy, of this kind of clearing space. And if I'm understanding correctly, it's also, this is where I'm seeing also the symbiosis of reduction of bad friction and inclusion of good friction being so important because I can imagine if we're simply reducing bad friction and we're a hundred percent in favor of that, uh, you know, understanding the impact that bad friction can have on engagement and on well-being. But if we simply do that and make things more efficient, I can imagine that's quite tempting for leaders because there's this idea that if we were just more efficient, more efficient, we do see higher productivity. We can, you know, see more outcomes, more results. But if we can actually use that space that's created to implement some healthy, good friction, I imagine that that's where some pretty amazing innovation can lie. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I love your, you know, you've sort of made the gift of time into one that actually creates space. And that's exactly kind of what it is. It not only creates space, Sally, but it also reduces noise. So you can have a lot of space with a lot of noise and there's not much you can do. So part of what you want is you want space with as little noise as possible. Because noise is the biggest kind of problem. And I think if we take all of that out, the consequences, as you point out, for organizations are amazing. In our book, we have a case study of AstraZeneca, where a team of 40 people, I think in 2019 at AstraZeneca, they saved the company $2 million. Now, $2 million is roughly equivalent, at least when we wrote the case study, to 1,248 full-time employees or FTEs. But what's interesting is why were they giving people, they weren't interested in saving 1,248 FTEs. They wanted to give people 2 million hours back to do what? To serve 4 million more customers, to run 400 more early phase trials, 26 late phase trials, and the like. And we were interviewing this extraordinary individual who spearheaded this. Uh, her name was Pushkala Subramanian. Why, after they saved the 2 million hours, everybody said, my God, your team should actually become a department. She said, see, that's where we need to subtract bad friction to. The moment we make ourselves into an organization is another problem. So they stop. And I remember asking her, how was all of this elimination of bad friction done? Was it you and other members of this elite team who did it? Or did it actually trickle down and seep to the rank and file? She said, well, it did more than that. And she gave an example, apparently at AstraZeneca, people show, you know, work starts at eight o'clock. Usually people show up at 7.45 or whatever, and you got to swipe your ID card and there's like a little gate that, you know, goes up and down and then you go. And every day, pretty much every workday rather, you actually had a traffic jam. A lot of people stuck with all this thing. And they had a word simplification the day, the evening, the day before. And this young woman, Pushkala Subramanian, goes to work and she finds there's no traffic jam. She asks the security guard, who is not even an employee of AstraZeneca, he's a contractual employee. And she says, hey, what happened to the traffic jam and the gate and all this? And apparently the guy looked at her and said, madam, you have the world simplification day yesterday and all of you are giving people the gift of time. I thought I could give you a gift of time too. I could save you half an hour every day. We figured out another way to get you checked in. I mean, who is thinking about it? Isn't that amazing? Now, to me, that guy, too, is a trustee of people's time. I mean, he might be a security guard, but he's actually acting like an owner, acting, you know, with the mindset of I'm a trustee of other people's time, too. It was like very, very uplifting for me to listen to that particular book and to the story. And I think 
Huggy, this idea of leaders taking personal accountability for that is so important as well. And I'll just speak to my own experience working in local government. And you mentioned earlier that when we create too much friction for employees, it can cause good people to do bad things or to change their behavior. And certainly I know when I was working in local government, I was often referred to as a bit of a rogue operator because I found myself so constantly frustrated with the bureaucracy. And my manager at the time Thankfully for him, we did find ourselves in a little bit of, you know, hot water here and there because he sort of had the motto, let's just do it first and ask for forgiveness later because we were so sick of the red tape and we were really motivated employees. So we found ourselves doing unfavorable behaviors within that organization because we couldn't get the work we needed to get done simply because of the paperwork, which is so frustrating because our job is to serve the community. And we felt like we could not serve the community as a result of the bureaucracy. And if you are an intrinsically motivated motivated person, I will assure you from my personal experience, there's nothing that will kill your internal generator quicker than too much paperwork. (laughs) So I love this idea of the, the leader being the personal trustee of this, because I think it helps us to take accountability. And when we take accountability, we can do something about it. And I want to dive into this a little bit more, Huggy. You mentioned in the book that there is these three leadership principles of friction fixes. Can you explain to us what these are and why they matter? So, you know, the three friction-fixing principles, you know, the mindset, I've already, in a sense, high-touched on two of them, the trustee of time, the product. The third thing is, what you want to do is you want to celebrate doers, because those are the people who actually, you know, uh, get things done. And the thing is, all the time, what you want to do is, as a leader, you are constantly trying to sort of see what are the ramps to bad friction in an organization and to, you were trying to kind of head them off at the pass, so to speak. So in our book, one of the things we talk about is one ramp to bad friction and why there is this tragedy of the commons. Well, you know, you have a garden that's untended. It's not mowed, overrun with weeds. How do all of those things kind of happen? Well, one of the reasons, one ramp, so we think of this as like a freeway. There's just like a giant crash unspooling vehicles crashing into one another, you can't see it. And that everything grinds to a halt. Things become slow, agonizingly, achingly slow and frustratingly so. And I think of your, you know, government uh, examples, be it at local, state or federal governments. So one ramp to that kind of bad friction, the the deluge of bad friction, one ramp is, uh, if you will, myopia on the part of senior leaders. Senior leaders often can be myopic, for two reasons. One reason is they actually, they have power. And what the research and power shows is the more powerful you feel, the less you search. Because when you have power, you don't have uncertainty. There's no reason for you to search. Who searches? People without power search. Hey, why did this happen? You know, all that. So they have a lot of illusion. The other thing is, one study shows that people at the C-suite don't know how work gets done three, four levels beneath them. And so they underestimate coordination difficulty. So they just think it's easy to do. So you've got this kind of myopia stemming from power and underestimation of coordination difficulty. And what does that do? It hardens into impatience. And so why can't we do it faster? Why can't we do it quicker? And then part of what you do is you heap key performance indicators on people. You know, I wrote an article in the McKinsey Quarterly called Accountability Isn't a Word, It's an Equation. For most people think accountability is a word. For me, accountability equals account or key result area or key performance indicator multiplied by ability. 
So when you go to organizations, people are focused on the account part of accountability. Nobody's thinking about the ability part. And so how do you stock up ability? Well, you don't ship people off to, uh, you know, educational courses and the like. The simplest way to actually improve and boost ability is to give people the gift of time. Because then I can be curious, I can be generous and the like. And we just don't do enough of that. And there are stories galore of organizations where they impose KPIs on people and not worry about their ability. And the result is good people engage in wrongdoing. They do bad things. In our own Bay Area, the showcase example is a bank called Wells Fargo. Yeah, they put a lot of pressure. So several investigations revealed. The CEO was ousted. Bonuses were clawed back. A law firm was called in to investigate. And when they came in to investigate, they wrote a report about an edge city in Arizona. Apparently in this edge city, there were around 10 banks or so. Roughly 10,000 customers, might have been a little more. All of them divvied amongst the 10 banks. The key performance indicator for Wells Fargo employees Allegedly, according to this report, was you have to come up and establish 1,000 new relationships. Well, how are you going to do it this in a town where there's no growth in population? So what did employees do? They created fake credit card accounts, fake loans, fake this. And all of these people presumably were people who go to church on Sundays, coach Little League Baseball, you know, volunteer at the nonprofit and do all of these things that good people do. Good people. Yeah, good people can easily do bad things. And that's kind of the tragedy of organizing. And what stood out to me as you're speaking, Huggy, was this sense of, and I know this deviates a little bit perhaps from the sort of the, the core of what you cover in the book, but a sense of humility that is important for leaders to be able to bring. And not necessarily humility in order for them to learn everything about everything, but humility to understand that they don't fully understand the process and that that's okay, but to sort of hold space for that, to allow that, and to then, based on that, to give people more time to do what they need to in the process. Completely. Without humility, you won't have curiosity. If you don't have humility, the outcome is overconfidence. And if you have overconfidence, the second outcome is myopia. So, you know, and as you were asking this question, Sally, what was crossing through my mind is the lovely example of the CEO of Office Depot, a chain of stores here in America. Imagine you, both of you are the CEOs of this company. You get two reports. You've got mystery shop. Office Depot sells, you know, phones and computers and so on to small business people. So you get one report from your mystery shop. They go there and they say, you know, it's brightly lit, it's clean, and people are wearing uniforms and this, that, and the other. You're acing these surveys from Mystery Shop. But as the CEO, you get another report, and the other report is your same store sales are going down. And you're thinking, how's possible? My Mystery Shoppers say I'm doing great, and then we're not selling enough. So what does this CEO do, you know, to your point? He says, I better find out. And so how am I going to find out? Instead of calling a meeting, I'm going to head over to a store, park the car, see what the hell happens. Store opens at 9 o'clock, a lot of inbound traffic. And the guy says, thank God, people are going into the store. And five minutes later, the people who've gone into the store, they're all coming out without any shopping bags. And he says, that's crazy. All these people went in and they're coming back empty-handed. How come? He goes in and he sees instantly what the problem is. Right when the customer's coming in 9 o'clock, the store employees, they're actually very busy stacking product on the shelf. First thing the customer sees is not the face of the employee, but regrettably the backside of an employee. Well, until this guy finishes the shelving of the products. You know, you walk out. 
why were they doing that at nine in the morning? Because the warehouse people thought, well, the best time for us to ship product to your store is 7.30 in the morning or eight in the morning. Nobody ever thought of doing it from the customer's point. It's such a fantastic approach. I think that's... That's what I mean by humility. Yeah, and I think that's such a wonderful example, Huggy, because it's so practical and it's so obvious when you say it. And yet I think there are so many examples in organizations around the world, even as we are speaking right now that are occurring, where that is simply happening and that is ongoing and no one is really looking at the why and having the humility and the curiosity to be able to drive over and check it out. Yeah, because if we don't do something about how we design organizations to produce this excess of bad friction, what are we doing to the people who work for organizations? I mean, to me, I mean, I hope I'm not exaggerating, but I sort of wonder sometimes that employees, when they go to companies, they've got to deal with this onslaught of bad friction, and they come home exhausted. And when they come home to work, the only thing they have for their family is the scraps of their self. Like, you know, how can you come home with some a few scraps of yourself. Like, I don't know how that's kind of possible. You're hitting me right in the heart here, Huggy, because I went through a burnout. As our listeners know, I went through a burnout as a finance lawyer. And I know from my own experience how little of me was left in the moments when I was at home and what a disservice I did to myself and my loved ones as a result. And if we think of that at scale, it's kind of scary. Yeah, it's monumentally scary, you know, monumentally scary. And then I don't know how to sort of describe it. It's kind of like you sort of go, you're kind of exhausted. You say, oh my God, I got another problem. I got to organize dinner. Let's call out for dinner. And the meal that's supposed to be an occasion of joy and togetherness and so on and so forth, it becomes one of like, oh great, you know, you watch your TV and you do things. I'm going to do my emails. You know, and kind of thinking, you know, is that the way to live life? I'm not sure. I, I don't think so. Well, this is why we're so grateful to have these kind of conversations with people like yourself, Huggy, because we really do see that there is a movement of people who know that it can be done differently and that we shifting gradually in that direction. And that's where we find much of our hope. You know, there's something you mentioned in the book that I did want to touch on specifically. And this is this, I hear it a lot. And I've had a lot of conversations recently with leaders around this idea of how tempting it can be to sort of add things on when we're thinking of, you know, adding to people's to-do lists. And we work here, you know, with leaders to help build healthier cultures. And it can be quite a process for them to understand that we often need to subtract before we add, or that that needs to be a process where both are occurring. I wonder if you can share with us a little bit about what friction fixes do differently here. Yes. So I'm so glad you touched upon this addition bias that we have. There was actually an article several months ago in Nature that showed that all of us come with this addition bias. We know how to add, but we just don't know how to take. And that's part of the problem. So One of the things uh, we talk about in our book is what friction fixes do is they actually are very good at doing good riddance reviews, Uh, you know. And uh, so we're actually having an article coming out in the Harvard Business Review called, uh, you know, rid your organization of obstacles that infuriate, you know. I think is the title that they finally we have sort of agreed upon. And, you know, how does this work? It could start with the simplest of things. In our book, we talk about a wonderful example of Dr. Melissa Ashton, who is in Hawaii with the healthcare operation there. And she came up with a super simple but lovely idea of getting rid of stupid stuff. Now, why can't governmental organizations, businesses, nonprofits, and the others actually tell their employees, hey, guys, get rid of stupid stuff. So when I teach this to our executives who come here at Stanford, I just tell them, imagine you're going back. You're launching an initiative called Get Rid of Stupid Stuff. It is only allowed one role. 
and that rule cannot exceed four words, and that rule should instantly be understood by a 10-year-old. How are you going to do that? And, you know, most of them, when they think about, like, launching a thing, it's like a lot of bad friction. Oh, my God, you got to do this, you got to do that. They do the adding. Here, it's all deliberate sort of subtraction. How would you do that? And when you really push them, it's amazing. They actually come up with pretty interesting ideas. You know, one rule is throw out trash or make sure you save time. I mean, simple little things that a 10-year-old can get, you can use that in the organization. So that's certainly one place where you can actually begin by getting rid of stupid stuff. Simplest of things to do. Nothing complicated. There are other things that you can do. So one of the things we talk about in our book is the rule of how. So imagine you only had 50% of the resources to do this. What would you actually eliminate? And then you eliminate a bunch of things. And then you say, what if we only had 25%, 50% of the resources again, which becomes 25% from the original. And then you do that one or two times, you really begin to question a lot of things that you do. And many of them, we don't really need and we don't. Yeah. And Huggy, one thing you touched on in the book as well, I guess a byproduct of bad friction is that, and this is something Sally and I are very passionate about at Human Leaders, and that is how human connection can actually be damaged with the presence of bad friction. The example you used was human connection at a grocery store chain or one of the examples in the Netherlands, which to me demonstrated the damage of human connection between the brand and its employees and the customer. But I imagine, obviously, internally to an organization as well, it damages human connection now into personal relationships as well. Can you just speak to that a little bit for us as well and perhaps some of the ramifications of what that damaged human connection might look like for an organization? Yeah. You know, if I were to recruit a metaphor, Alexis, I think it's like uh, the explosive spread of a cancer. So the problem is the biggest cancer in organizations is indifference to others. Bluntly, when we're dealing with a lot of friction ourselves, we just don't give a shit about other people. We think of ourselves as independent people operating in an atomistic market or whatever. We don't think of ourselves as interdependent selves. And so that's the kind of fraying of the connection, the loss of the connection. So a lot of the times what you want to do is you actually want to reduce friction in a way that creates connection. Let me give you an example. So... In the wars in Afghanistan that the U.S. fought, you had forward operating bases, you know, in the hills of Afghanistan. So American soldiers would be sent there. They had a deployment time of three to six months, and then they would be rotated out and new people would come in their place. And the Army's uh, modus operandi was the returning soldiers were asked to fill out a survey. Typically, like any bureaucratic survey, pages and pages long, most people wouldn't fill it out. They would do some analysis. Nobody would do that. And it so turned out that a general from there came to Stanford. And he said, you know, we have this problem. What can you guys do about it? Bob and I thought, great, this could be a fantastic project for our MBAs. So we gave it to our MBAs and they came up with a brilliant idea. And their idea was, hey, first, how do we motivate soldiers to actually share their experiences with an incoming soldier? So they told the soldiers, hey, you spend 10 minutes talking to the soldier who's actually going to take your place. We'll give you an hour in those days. We'll give you an hour of Skype time to talk with you. Those predictably were fired. But what was interesting was they told the soldiers, all that we want you to do is share during this 10-minute conversation 
three short stories. What happened when you arrived? A story from the midpoint of your tenure and a story about you leaving and, you know, going back. And sometimes I would listen into these stories and invariably in these conversations, you would find the story of an ambush. We started in the morning, we forgot our sunglasses. We forgot to check our comms. So we didn't know that the radios weren't working. We were under fire. We couldn't kind of call in air support. On and on and on the story goes. You can imagine how powerful and vivid these stories are. And people are really prepared to do the job. So you're creating connection, you're transferring knowledge, you're doing all of this in a way that actually primes people to be prepared and ready to do the job. And now you can see we reduce the friction. No survey, instead story. But we create a little bit of friction too by saying three stories within 10 minutes, lest you sort of get into a lot of irrelevant detail and the like. So, but I think the point is always creating that human connection. And when you create the human connection, what you realize is an organization can't be run if your implicit model of the organization is, as a leader, I'm the CPU and everybody else is a peripheral. Organizations don't work like that. Great ideas can come from anywhere. Uh, in fact, uh, the other day, we had uh, somebody from the Stanford alum from Watsonville, California. He has a chocolate company and he came up with a new product and I said, hey, how did you come up with this new product? Is it your R&D guys who figured this chocolate out? He said, no, it was my electrician. He said, electrician? How does he know of your chocolate? He said, well, he's a Latino. He came to me and said, why aren't you selling chocolate to my community? Here's a way you could do that. And bam, you know, doors were open to a new market entirely. Incredible. Yeah. And I think it's something and I don't want to get too off track here, Huggy, but I think it's such an important message, this message of connectivity and almost, you know, replacing survey with story. I think that's an incredible takeaway way for leaders as well in the sense that we live not only in a society which is highly individualistic, but then when organizations are the same, sort of reflect that as well, then it so quickly leads to disengagement and to that, you know, that loss of something that is such potentially has so much power for us as individuals and a collective. Completely. But at the same time, you know, I want to make sure we, while taking bad friction out, is such an important thing. It's equally important to realize we've sort of got to put in good friction in organizations. Absent good friction, we can all do a bunch of bad things pretty quickly. And I want to sort of give you an example even on the consumer side. So it's interesting in Houston, there was this airline, uh, you know, and what happened is they would land the jet at Houston airport and they would use a jetway closest to baggage claim. So it took the passengers a couple of minutes to get out of the aircraft and they'd go to baggage claim and they'd be waiting for five minutes. What kind of airline is this? You know, know, such a delay in getting clearing bags and this and that. Now, you're the airline executive. Like you can, of course, design like a baggage claim system at hideous expense to yourself to make sure like the moment people get out of the aircraft, the bags are ready. That's kind of prohibitively expensive. What did these guys decide to do? They thought, you know, maybe we should put in a little bit of good friction. They said, why choose the jetway closest to baggage where they take 30 seconds to walk and five and a half minutes to wait? We'll choose the jetway farthest from baggage claim. So they spend five and a half minutes walking. And by the time they walk there, they just say, wow, half an hour, the bags arrived. These guys are great. They haven't changed the blood. They just landed in a different jetway. I mean, now think of how simple that is. Think of how- And everyone gets a little bit more exercise. Exactly. <laughs> And it's kind of funny, you've traveled, you guys have traveled and been around the world. I've got to tell you, one of the funniest stories I've had is I was actually teaching in one of our social enterprise programs, and there was this guy from Indonesia, Bali, 
and you guys know Bali way better than me. I've been there a couple of times. So I said, what do you do? He said, well, I'm a microfinance guy. I said, ah, and I said, then how are you doing? He said, oh, we're growing rapidly. I'm hiring a lot of people. I said, really? To do what? Uh, he said, well, you know, we've got such a surfeit of applications. I'm worried people are lying in the applications. So we're hiring teams of people to scrutinize these applications. So they read out people who lie, misrepresent, mistake, and so, you know, I don't know anything about microfinance particularly other than having some knowledge. But I asked him, I said, hey, have you ever thought of making it easier for your customers not to lie? And he looks at me and he says, like, how do I do that? And I said to him, I don't know. You're the guy from Bali. You know, I've been there twice. My recollection of Bali is there are a lot of temples in Bali. He nodded his head and said, yeah. And I said, how many of your offices are right next to a temple? You know, you put your loan application office right next to a temple. Like, what do you think? You think people lie right in front of a temple, a church, a mosque, a synagogue? Unlikely. And, you know, you, we walk away, we give ourselves the green light to do bad stuff. But in front of these buildings, you kind of think, yeah, maybe I ought to do the right thing, you know? So it's like a pretty simple, and my point was norms are actually embodied. You know, they're not out there. You know, they're embodied. So anyway, those are all examples of how you've got to think in like a very sort of simple kind of way, you know, is, is the way I think about it. I think, you know, Huggy, that's such a fantastic example and such a practical, you know, vivid example of what it actually looks like to you know, bring some good friction reduce bad friction in such a personal and relatable way. And I feel like we've had a masterclass in friction with you together. Thank you so much for your time. And thank you for joining us on We Are Human Leaders. It's been a joy and a delight. And I think all that all of us need to do is if we can make the world of work a little bit less miserable, where people feel it's less of a grind, we can actually do. But let's make sure we create that friction. In closing, I can't resist one short story. This is in response to Alexis, who's double-clicked a bunch of times on governmental organizations. So I want to talk about an organization where they did something simple, but quite clever, I thought. So this is kind of like a governmental organization because it was a monopoly gas supplier. So they controlled 98.5% of the market. You know, when you're a monopoly, do you really care about your customers? No, you treat them terribly. So what did the CEO do? He came upon a pretty interesting idea. He said, you know what? We're going to actually take a day off and I just want to get my employees and ask them to be the customer. And then they got a bunch of customers and said, you be the employees for the day. And the customers had a whale of a time mistreating, you know, because the employee would come and, uh, you know, and the customer would say, hey, who are you? What are you doing here? And the guy would say, I've come here to pay the bill. Stand in line. You know, you don't have an appointment. You don't have this. You don't have that. You can imagine a certain level of revenge. <laughs> I love it. And that was the employees realized, oh my God, that's the way we treat our customers? Yeah. I mean, here's a guy who's come to pay the bill and your salary. And what are you doing? You're cracking on. Mm. And you don't need to do that. So this was another way of recreating human connection as well by putting in a little bit of good. I love that, Huggy. Very much. Uh, hopefully this spoke to the governmental angle there a little bit, at least, Alexis. So love chatting with both of you. Thank you for your interest. Thank you for your curiosity and thank you for your generosity. 
Thank you so much, Huggy. And that just to comment on that final story there, it just demonstrates how sometimes we can have that sort of empathic disconnect from the end user. And when we're not sharing their experience, we forget that it can be a challenging one. So thank you so much for that final story there, Huggy. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on We Are Human Leaders. Thank you so very much. Bye-bye and enjoy the rest of the day. Thank you, Huggy. Thanks for joining us for this episode of We Are Human Leaders with Huggy Rao. The Friction Project, how smart leaders make the right things easier and the wrong things harder, is now available everywhere. This book, we could not recommend highly enough. It has such practical wisdom that you can embed in your organization right away to start cutting bad friction and introducing good. For more information and a direct link to buy the book, see our show notes at www.wearehumanleaders.com. And if leveling up your organizational culture is something you're ready to do in 2024, reach out to us at Human Leaders. Find out how to work with us at www.wearehumanleaders.com. Thanks for being with us in this episode and we'll see you next time.